0: It's Monday, it's 1pm, and it's time for your weekly dose of brain science. I'm Postdoc, and this is Braincast, all the way from my luxurious, and still, to be honest, you know, relatively sunny office at King's College Hospital. Keep in mind that you can access all previous braincasts for absolutely nothing. That's amazing, right? I mean, when was the last time someone gave you something for free? Okay, apart from NHS, of course, you register once and you get access to great content like like last week's conversation with David O'Kai about impulse control behaviors and how these can be disrupted with treating Parkinson's with dopamine agonists. This week, we're going to get a a bit, just a bit, naughty, and we're diving headfirst to the world of illegal drugs, but how these can be used to improve our mental health with me, a man with more titles than Real Madrid, the chair of drug science, president of the European Brain Council, and I'm only touching the surface. He has published over 400 original research papers, a similar number of reviews and book chapters, eight government reports on drugs, 27 books, the Edward J. Safra professor of neuropsychopharmacology and director of the neuropsychopharmacology units in the division of brain sciences. Braincast people, this is Professor David Nutt. Prof, Thank really you. happy to have you here today. But before, was a, yeah. <laughs> before we go deep into the science of things, I'm, I'm really curious. So, so what attracted you to your field of expertise? I mean, I doubt you woke up one day and thought, I'll trial MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So was there a personal experience involved or just, I don't know, scientific fate?
1: Well, I was fortunate as uh, as an undergraduate, I was at Cambridge doing physiology. At the time, chemical neurotransmission was beginning to be understood. And so I was there when we began to realize the brain is a chemical machine, not an electrical machine. And it became very clear to me from early on that to understand the brain, you had to probe this chemical machine Mm. with tools and the best tools were drugs and over my course of my life in psychopharmacology I've probably given more different kinds of drugs to human beings than probably anyone ever in the history of the world actually but certainly anyone alive and so it was pretty natural to study ones that are illegal as well as ones that are legal because there's no obvious distinction between a legal drug and an illegal drug uh, the problem is, of course, studying illegal drugs is much more difficult. So it needed someone with a, a lot of a very thick skin, a lot of willpower, and uh, someone who didn't have anything to lose to go into battle with the illegal drugs. I mean, to be honest, in fact, this was my next
0: question. I mean, was it easy to get things started? I mean, I can't even imagine the expression on people's face. When you first saw them, you know, back in the day, well, I'm going to repurpose illicit drugs for treatment of mental health disorders, given that they have been legally
1: defined.
0: Been we didn't not- start like that.
1: It's really important. Really it's very important people understand that yeah. we started researching psychedelics and MDMA to understand what they did in the brain, to understand why these were different kinds of drugs. And it was that scientific understanding that gave us insights into their therapeutic potential. So this is an example of what you call translational medicine. The neuroscience provoked the ideas for therapy, not the other way around.
0: Yeah. So let's start with the bit. So in 2018, you led a group of experts with what seems like an aspiration to rewrite the map of drug policy. So you concluded in four regulatory regimes ranging from absolute prohibition to free markets. So what makes a drug illegal?
1: Oh, the the current legal status of drugs is determined entirely by the political climate at the time the drug becomes available. There is absolutely zero relationship between the harms of drugs and the legal status uh, in anywhere in the world. Uh, And that clearly tells us it's a political or a moral decision. But it's not even moral, really, because there is a lot of moral opposition to drugs like alcohol and tobacco, but they're still legal. So in the end, it's politics and economics and and the, the drinks industry trying to stop the emergence of alternative drugs such as MDMA, which might undermine their profit. So let's get down to
0: business. So what is a psychedelic?
1: So psychedelic is a term that the term means mind manifesting. Sometimes they're called hallucinogens um, and theriogen. There are many different terms for them, but psychedelic is the one that uh, I think Aldous Huxley came up with. And he was, of course, the great writer about the psychedelic experience. And psychedelics are largely and certainly the ones we currently work with, LSD, psilocybin, DMT. They all work as agonists at the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor. And they turn on that receptor, uh, and that then activates the cells that the receptor is on, which are largely the layer five pyramidal cells in the cortex, which as of course, all all the people listening from the Institute of Psychiatry know, those are the key neurons in the whole of the brain, because those are the neurons which essentially integrate cross-modal processing in the brain. And paradoxically, by stimulating those, probably because of the stimulation of the interneurons, the chandelier cells which control them, you actually switch them off. Uh, And once you switch them off, the brain ceases to be the normal, reliable organ of prediction that it has uh, learnt to be over the preceding 10, 20, 30 years, uh, and becomes much more free-running. We call it entropic. And uh, and one of the most remarkable things about psychedelics is it that the, the visual experiences they produce are actually the you can see the hallucinations you can predict them as being the pro- primary processing of the visual cortex before the visual system uh, organizes all the sensory inputs from in the eye into into an image. These primary processing of very simple shapes and colors is visible because the high level processing which eventually makes a full image. Uh, is actually disrupted. So
0: psilocybin, a classic psychedelic, discovered in the 50s, for which, in fact, you wrote, you know, something like a lyrical encomium with a highly prestigious cell journal recently. I like the phrase that you use: that under psychedelics, you said that the brain escapes. Actually, something mm. that you something that we just said: so it escapes from usually tightly constrained and predictable ways of working, right? And you have recently actually, you used an fMRI paradigm where you showed changes in amygdala and prefrontal connectivity in patients suffering from treatment-resistant depression. So what I find interesting though is a quote from your paper with Leo Rosenberg. So you say that unlike other psychopharmacological treatments that seek to medicate patients on a chronic basis, the psychedelic model seeks to treat core psychological issues via a small number of profound and potentially transformative psychological experiences. What do you mean by that?
1: So as a result of our neuroscience fMRI imaging studies uh, and also MEG studies with um, uh, psilocybin, we we came to the conclusion that it could potentially help people with depression. Uh, One Mm -hmm. of the reasons for that was it Dampens down activity in a part of the brain called the subgenual cingulate cortex. It also disrupts the default mode network, which is overactive in depression. So we did a study in in resistant depression, and we also did brain imaging before and after, and it was very clear that um, there was a hum- some kind of remodeling of the brain. Uh, the circuits become differently organized after hmm. the treatment with the psilocybin, and we found in ours. I have to say to our surprise that for the majority of people with resistant depression, just a single psilocybin trip, a 25 milligram dose, produced enduring changes. Some of them are still well six years later. Not many of them, but some of them. But most were well for weeks or months after a single dose. So this is a different paradigm uh, to treating depression from anything else. Even fast acting treatments like ECT or ketamine. You have to give repeatedly. But a single dose of psilocybin could somehow reset the brain uh, and have people much better for long periods. And so we began to think, well, what, what's me- what could be the mechanism? And our current thinking is that a disorder like depression is an internalizing disorder. It's a disorder in which people get locked into a very maladaptive, negative ways of thinking. And when you image depressed people, they have a hyperconnectivity of this uh, internal circuit called the default mode. So by disrupting that, we can uh, effectively they can break free from those maladaptive processes almost instantly.
0: Wow, I mean, now the, the responses to psychedelics though are let's say difficult to predict. You know, with some people having you know amazing experiences of describing amazing like really beautiful trips, but also mm. others who go through really challenging ones. Yeah. So how can we then ensure that you know? our patient is going to benefit and not you know, go through a challenging one? Or is there any benefit even if they're going in a challenging
1: one? Well, that's a big question and there are multiple answers to that. So the first thing, just to stick, stick with the last point you made. Yeah. Yeah, there are people who take recreational trips who find them disturbing. They have bad trips, yet will say, but I feel different and I can see the world in, in, in a more logical way. So even a bad trip can be beneficial. Usually, yeah. people don't do another one, but it, but they but they they can have benefit. But the reality is, in our depression studies, people do not have good trips. They spend and psilocybin trip lasts between about four and five hours, and almost all of them are going somewhere which is dark and unpleasant. Often places they've repressed for you know decades, and that allows them to sort of get into the origins of their depression to try to find. In many cases, the causation or one of the causative elements of their depression. So these are not pleasurable. These people aren't having ecstasy. These people are having agony. But afterwards, and and this is really critical, it's not necessarily the trip that is therapeutic. It's the fact that we use the information that they come out with from the trip in what we call integration sessions afterwards. We don't do psychotherapy during the trip. It's actually virtually impossible to, to, to engage with people when they are having a very powerful mind altering experience and often they're not even feel they're present in the room they often are somewhere else in this in the universe but it's the next day and the days after that when we can work our therapists can work with the patients to try to make sense of the, the insights they gain and, and turn those insights to their benefit.
0: So by meditating on death we paradoxically become conscious of life. So how extraordinary it is to be here at all. Awareness of death can jolt us away to the sensuality of existence. So obviously this is not me. This is an excerpt from a book by Bachelor, but also the way Robin Parker Harris chose to end one of his papers on DMT. Now for mm-hmm. people not familiar with DMT, or else dimethyltryptamine, is a potent serotonergic agent that seems to mimic the near death experience. Meaning, you know, out of body experience, traveling through a tunnel, you know, having visions of bright light. So I'm thinking, how can a DMT induced near-death experience be a good thing in the end of the day?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question again. So um I think we just there's just a couple of things we should just reflect on a little. The first thing is that near-death experiences as you intimated, uh, can be life-affirming because if you get over them, uh, <laughs> you can be very grateful. I mean, Pavarotti, Pavarotti said his depression was cured when he was on a plane that crashed at Milan airport. He thought he was gonna die and he didn't and he was ever grateful so he didn't get depressed again because he kind of saw that that yeah. uh, he, he was kind of fortunate and he'd he lived. But um, what we did, this study was a, essentially a phenomenological study. We simply compared the, the magnitude of a range of different experiences. We normally rate about twelve different psychological experiences when people have their trips, uh, and we compared the scores on DMT a DMT trip with those that a group in the University of Liège in Belgium, and they're experts on near death experiences. And it, and there was quite a lot of similarity, as the points you made, you know, the tunnel and the, and the light at the end, you know. The, so what's going on? Well. Some people think that the near-death experience is caused by the release of DMT. I, I personally don't think that. I think that's unlikely. I think the reality is that the, the near-death experience and psychedelic experiences are both states of very profound alterations in consciousness when the brain is kind of slipping back to a very early state. And so it might be that the near-death experience isn't actually the near-death experience. It might be the being-born experience, the coming out into the light rather than, yeah. rather than going to, into death. And because... Uh, we We've got a lot of we, we think that one of the best ways of understanding the psychedelic experience is that you it puts you back into a much more primitive way, a much earlier way of thinking. like it takes you back to childhood when your brains are are flexible and adaptable, and all sorts of connections are made or and, and uh, by resetting your brain to that early stage. So that might be why it's it's a bit similar to the near-death experience. It's a, a very limited but powerful. Mm. element of, or of way of processing sensations, essentially.
0: So MDMA, used by psychotherapists in the 80s, demonized by the press in the 90s for its non-chemical use, so widely known as ecstasy. So there was a great review of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy published last year in Frontiers of Psychiatry for anyone that's interested. But, but would you like to describe you know, what happens during a typical session
1: Yes, so um, so it's it's a MDMA. One of the things we were particularly interested in uh, was this relationship, or the comparative neuroscience of psychedelics versus MDMA. Because in some countries, MDMA is treated like a psychedelic, and in the states, MDMA attracts twice the penalties of psychedelics. Because you get a penalty for it being a psychedelic, and you get a penalty for it being a stimulant like cocaine. So. Very dangerous to have caught with an MDMA in the States because you go to prison for decades. Um, but it, it's clearly not a t- typical psychedelic. And our brain imaging study, uh, which was kind of the first open imaging study of it, uh, showed that it actually had a very different profile. And instead of turning off cortical regions, it, it actually suppressed subcortical regions, particularly the amygdala and the hippocampus. And that... Well, during that study, we also showed it dampened down the affect of negative memories, but enhanced the affect of positive memories. And so uh, it's, uh, we think it's useful in the treatment of disorders like PTSD. And that's the study we've recently finished, which was a study of uh, people with alcoholism who were basically drinking to deaden their memories of their trauma. And and the the therapy was based on the PTSD model using MDMA, which is essentially a psychotherapeutic course, usually somewhere between about 10 and 18 uh, therapies, uh, with two MDMA sessions interspersed. And uh, those sessions, you give a reasonably high dose. uh, People have quite a powerful experience. We gave 125 milligrams uh, uh, of the the hydrochloride, and then we gave a top-up of 62.5 milligrams 67.5 uh sixty seven point five milligrams later in the day, so they have a long trip five to seven hours uh, where, at which p- during that trip you are engaging with them in psychotherapy you are trying to get them to remember and relive the traumatic memories and so extinguish them in, in the classic Cbt model of uh, of exposure to the emotions because the whole point about PTSD psychotherapy is to get people to overcome the emotional memory but obviously they won't overcome they will maintain the uh, the uh, declarative or the factual memory and MDMA we believe by dampening down emotional responses allow people to sit for those hours through this therapeutic process uh, and uh, and therefore essentially achieve a better outcome than traditional psychological treatment
0: i mean you know as everything in life though you know even MDMA assisted psychotherapy it's not perfect right uh, it was only written the 2020 paper in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. So Anna Borisova reported the effects of MDMA on, on trust, on on cooperative mm-hmm. behavior, and empathy yeah. in a yeah. double-blind, placebo-controlled experiment. Now, what yeah. I found really interesting is that you know although people were saying that you know like this was good, so they we were self-reporting good things like you know like how close they grew to others and like feeling euphoric. Mm-hmm. However, the task-based measures they didn't find. Any differences from placebo.
1: So how do you explain that? Well, I, it's a, I, I, it was a theory. And yeah. the theory is wrong. Well, that's one, theory, one explanation. The other explanation is actually these experimental models of trust, like the prisoner's dilemma, may not really be measuring mm. trust. Or yeah. not in the same way. I mean, trusting someone you don't know on a computer is a bit different from trusting someone you're dancing with in a club. So, you know, it may just be we haven't got good enough assays of trust i think in these when we're using it psychotherapeutically we obviously build up a lot of trust with the with the our patients before we give them the drug uh, and uh, and you have to do that because as, as one of the uh, one of the veterans in, the, in the, the, the very famous mdma trials were the the first ones were by the mithofferism there's this beautiful description of a of a therapy by a military vet and he comes out of the session and he says oh, I don't know why they call that ecstasy, because it was agony. <laughs> it's really hard work working through the emotional trauma that you've been, been suffering and trying to get it to the surface and trying then to, to uh, you know, extinguish it and, and MDMA can help. But you've got to trust the therapist. And if you, you know, because if you leave the session, yeah, then you can be worse. It can actually leave you in a worse state.
0: So, so, are there any 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 dangers,
1: any pitfalls, if you like, you know,
0: associated with using illicit drugs in the treatment of mental health disorders? Let's say, for example, you know, has anyone looked, uh, you know, the potential of abusing these substances while trying to treat the other mental health concerns?
1: Well, of course, this is this is a concern that is flagged up all the time, you know, and particularly when we were doing the alcohol study, we're saying, well, you're using one addictive drug. To, treat another. And, and my response to that was, firstly, MDMA is not addictive. And secondly, we're only going to, you're only going to use it once or twice in this case, uh, in, you know, over a 12-week period. So it's not as if we're giving someone that, a drug every day. If you took MDMA every day, you desensitize the receptor, so you wouldn't get addicted anyway. And the same is true with the psychedelics. But we looked at it quite carefully. And we specific, over the nine-month follow-up of our alcoholics, we asked them, have you taken ecstasy subsequently and none of them have. They don't need to if they if they're not suffering anymore. There's less, much less need for them to not to yeah. self-medicate. And uh, if they were to go off and use it recreationally, well, I don't. You know, as I said, I don't think it's addictive anyway.
0: Hmm. I mean, you know, one, one argument that I, you know, I frequently hear from people is that you know, well, if studies show benefits on people's mental health with, uh, with MDMA, then I could just take it on my own. So, can one compare? Clinical
1: MDMA use with recreational use. Well, that's an important point. I mean, you, there, I mean, as a psychiatrist I, and a therapist, I kind of believe that what we do is useful. But there, be, there are people I have met veterans who have self-medicated with MDMA and cured themselves. Now, there are two drawbacks to that. The first is. You don't know what you get. To. I mean, how do you know you're taking MDMA? I mean, yeah, you probably are, but you can't be certain. There was a period in Britain, you know, six, seven years ago when what you people were selling as MDMA wasn't MDMA, it was PMA. So so that's more, getting street drugs is a dangerous because of the lack of, un, lack of certainty of what you're taking. But also I would say to these people, yeah, you, but you might well have done better if you've been in a therapy as well. You know, you've done well. And, but there are people who will unquestionably benefit from having the psychotherapy on top of just the drug effect. I mean, you talk
0: to us about, you know, psilocybin and MDMA, and the truth is that, you know, we've only scratched the surface. I mean, you know, LSD for alcoholism, psychedelics for functional neurological disorders, and the list is
1: endless. So it's, what is next? what is next? I think psychedelics and MDMA, I think this will be the great revolution in psychiatry over the next 20 years. I think we're entering a whole new age where for the first time we're using drugs which facilitate psychotherapy in a way which is going to magnify the benefits of psychotherapy. I think it's a really exciting time to be being in psychiatry. This is the biggest breakthrough, possibly since the discovery of antipsychotics in the 50s.
0: I mean, interestingly, in in a 2019 report by the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group, so they looked into the public attitudes to drugs in the UK. What I found interesting is that a non negligible 16%. So they think it's morally wrong to use drugs. So, what do morals have to do with a substance?
1: Well, you need to ask those people to answer that question. But the, 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 the answer, my answer would be that we have tried to frame a lot of the discussion about drugs in moral terms. and. Uh, rather than in scientific terms. And and, and and that debate needs to be exposed because uh, there I don't see there's a moral distinction between taking MDMA and taking ethanol, alcohol. But some people think there is. And, and when you press them on that, they'll say, oh, well, because alcohol is legal. Yeah. They say, well, ecst- ecstasy could be legal. Oh, no, no, it's illegal. Why? Because it's harmful. But but it's less harmful than alcohol. Ah, but alcohol is legal, so that's all right. So when they talk about morality, they're talking more about breaking the law than the morality of actually engaging in altered states of consciousness with drugs. Well, that's what I think, anyway.
0: So before we finish, co authored a, a really interesting paper with Ashwin Venkat talking about our politicians. <laughs> and the, <laughs> I know, it was amazing. So the alcohol use, even when Parliament is in session, and the effect this can have on the judgment when voting for bills, you know, affecting us all, but mm. also about the influence that alcohol and tobacco companies, with billions of revenue, they may have on health policies. Actually, mm. you ended the paper recommending that parliamentarians should be brutalized before being allowed to vote. That alcohol subsidies in parliament to be stopped, serving hours in the parliamentary bars to be reduced, and freebies to staff from all companies. Should be also stopped
1: Have you ever heard back from these people? <laughs> I got a yeah. lot of, like, there they are ringing. It's a home secretary ringing now, arresting me. No, I haven't heard back, but I've got a lot of support peripherally. Uh, but isn't it amazing? So last week, Pretty Patel said she's going to start drug testing people in the workplace. And my Twitter to that was very clear: if we're going to start, let's do the beta testing in Parliament. It's absolutely outrageous the idea that you can test other people when you've got parliamentarians like Michael Gove, who've admitted using huge amounts of cocaine. We're going to test people with drugs. We've got to start where the decisions are made. Let's test them for every drug. Let's breathalyze them. It's outrageous that someone can vote for us to go to nuclear war drunk. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard. Imagine it, 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 this, con- this could ever be allowed or countenance, and yet it's completely countenanced. And, it, of course, it stems from a fundamental problem which actually underpins the drug laws at every level, which is that parliamentarians believe that they are better people. They believe that they're above the law, and we've seen that with the COVID uh, example <laughs> already, that they believe you know, that, that even when they're drunk, they're making better decisions than the rest of us, and that is absolute bollocks.
0: Professor David Abraeca's people, next Monday, we're shifting our attention into psychosis. How do our brains regulate emotional behavior? How is that linked to hearing voices and developing delusions? Expect loads of pharmacology, neuroscience, and certainly neuroimaging. With me, one of the most promising psychosis researchers out there, it's not only me that says that, she received the prestigious Narsat Young Investigator Award. Dr. Gemma Modinos, Sir Henry Daly Fellow, and visiting scholar at the University of Pittsburgh. Let me see say. Greets to all my friends in Baltimore. And on that note, POSPO and Braincast for mostly learning over and out.
1: Thank you.